Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Please rise for the reading of the word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your, um, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing in our study of First Peter, and we have moved into a section over the course of the last few weeks in which we are focusing, Peter's focusing on what could be called uh, missional living, or living in such a way that people get a glimpse of the life of the kingdom as they observe our character and our conduct. Our conduct. And, and really the, uh, the, the transitional verse, the verse that kind of provides the the heading, if you will, over all that follows is there in chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we mentioned when we looked at that text that the, the translation there, the word for uh, uh, conduct among the Gentiles that is honorable is actually, the word honorable is actually a word that is better translated beautiful. Uh, it's a word that is sometimes look, you know, considered good, but good not in the sense of moral goodness, good rather in the sense of that which is beautiful. And so what Peter is calling us to is to live literally a, a beautiful way of life in the world in which we find ourselves. So two weeks ago, we looked at what that looks like in the context of uh, larger society. What does it look like as Christians living uh, on, in or under uh, a non-Christian and um, in their day and, and increasingly in our day, a, a society that's opposed to the truths of Christianity. Uh, last week, we asked what that looked like within the household. So Peter transitioned from broader society to life within the household. Um, in Greco-Roman society, the household was considered the fundamental unit. If the household was strong, Greco-Roman culture and Greco-Roman society would be upheld and strengthened. That was the view of society as a whole. So what happened in the household was of central importance to Greco-Roman society. And so they were on display. In that day and age, there were household servants or slaves. And so Peter was dealing with the issue as he had household servants who became Christians and were living as Christians in, the, in, a, in a household that wasn't you know, headed up by a Christian, Peter's saying, hey, this is what it looks like to live in that context 
as a Christian slave. And so last week we applied that to Christians living in a secular workplace or, or Christians at a secular school and what it looks like to be a Christian in an environment that is antagonistic to you and what you believe. So that was last week. This week we move from that slave-master relationship in the household to the husband-wife relationship in the household. It's very important to recognize that when Peter says in 3.1, likewise, wives, he is not referring back to or saying that wives are like slaves. The same word is used in 3.7 with respect to husbands. He's not saying there, likewise, in that, and then by that saying that husbands are like slaves. What he's referring to when he says likewise in 3.1 and 3.7, which could also be translated in the same way or after the same manner, what he's referring back to is the example of Christ that we looked at last week. In chapter 2, verses 23 and following, concerning Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly in the same way wives. In the same way, husbands. In chapter 3, verse 7. So what is Peter doing here? What Peter is doing is taking the biblical principles of marriage, the vision that God lays out for marriage, and is seeking to apply it within the context of a marriage in a culture that's opposed to Christianity, to be sure, but especially in the context of a marriage where one spouse is now a Christian and the other is not. And he especially zeroes in on the case of a woman who becomes a Christian when her husband is not. Because in that culture, a woman would uh, be culturally disadvantaged. She would face uh, some level of uh, threat within that society. And so what Peter is doing in this passage is telling us, telling Christians in that day and age, Christian husbands and wives, telling us in our day and age how to follow the example of Christ in your marriage, especially when your spouse is not a believer. And we have a hard enough time living out a Christian marriage when our spouse is a Christian. We shrink back from biblical role relationships in marriage. We're far more influenced by the culture that we, than we are by Scripture when it comes to such things. We want to be accepted by society. We don't want to be seen as regressive. And sinfully, we want control in our marriage, which goes back, as we'll see, to the fall. We are more than happy to be served by our spouse we are not all that keen to serve our spouse. And that gets all the more magnified when only one spouse is a Christian. And again, that's what Peter's envisioning here. A, a couple is married, the, the gospel is proclaimed, a, a wife hears it and believes the husband doesn't or vice versa. And so you have this situation where one spouse is a Christian and the other is not. And for the Christian in that setting, it is especially hard. And I think Peter is incredibly sensitive to that fact and yet seeks to faithfully apply what Scripture says about biblical marriage. Now, you may know people who are in that very type of scenario. You may be one yourself. 
Um, as I prepared this week, I had two people in mind. One was my aunt, Donna, who's now with the Lord. Um, but as long as I knew her from my childhood on, um, was married to a, a man who did not love the Lord, uh, who really did not love her, and, and to whom, though, she seek to faithfully represent Christ in that marriage. Um, she was, uh, the word that comes to mind when I think of my aunt is long-suffering and also a lover of Jesus. And she's with him now in glory. She's experiencing joy like she never experienced on earth. But that's what makes it sad also. There was a joy that God intends for a Christian husband and a Christian wife to experience in marriage that she didn't get to experience. I also thought of a friend of mine from another town named Mike who likewise was a believer married to a non-Christian woman. And I saw the way that he suffered through that. He, like my Aunt Donna, maligned and, and undermined and, and mocked on the one hand, also on the other hand, simply not experiencing that joy and the fruit of relationship in a biblical marriage where both spouses love Jesus. And so I, I, I mean, this is a hard passage, right? I mean, we're not going to beat around the bush on that. It's a hard passage in any setting, but it's especially hard in light of the context that Peter intends, which is when one spouse is seeking to be faithful to Scripture when the other is not, when one spouse is a lover of Jesus and the other isn't, and the difficulties that arise in a marriage when that's the case. So if the bulk of the letter from 2.13 on is application of 2.12, Peter has in vision, in view, in this section, the context of marriage. How do you live a beautiful life in marriage, especially when your spouse is not a Christian? So to answer that, we need to consider three things. First, what is a beautiful marriage? Second, how does one live a missional marriage? And then third, who is the ideal spouse? So we need to look first, a beautiful marriage. Second, a missional marriage. And then third, the ideal spouse. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage. It is a hard one. I thank you that in the context of this letter that is written for a church that's living as, as exiles in a land in which they are increasingly being marginalized and, and ostracized and mocked. Lord, you don't, uh, through your servant Peter, don't just speak in generalities. You bring it home. And you help us understand what this looks like for us as individuals, but also for us in, in our relationships with society, as workers and as students, and also here in our relationships with our spouses for those of us who are married. And so we pray that you would help us to apply this faithfully. We pray especially that you would help us see Jesus, who is the ideal spouse. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first point, a beautiful marriage. In the beginning, God created a beautiful marriage. God created man and God created woman and then brought them together in marriage. So, you know, some key passages. You don't need to turn back to Genesis unless you want to. I'm just going to hit a couple key passages. Man and woman together before God. They are created before God as co-equals. Chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Co-equals in God's sight. Co-rulers over all creation. Genesis 1, 26, right before it. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then down in verse 28 of Genesis 1, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So co-equals in God's sight, co-rulers over God's creation and giving corresponding roles in terms of how they function. So you get the first glimpse of that in chapter 2, verse 18, again of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now you've heard, I'm sure, passage, or, you know, talk about this verse and that word helper. You know, we hear the word helper and we tend to think of someone you know, who's, who's weaker, right? We think of a child being, you know, mommy or daddy's helper in the kitchen or, or somewhere else in doing household work. And, and we, we think of that and we don't think of the helpers coming from a position of strength, like we may think of a mother or father helping a young child with their homework, right? All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, that word for helper is used to describe God's help of his people, Israel. Helper or Azer in the Old Testament always points to God. If there's anyone moving from a position of strength in order to help those who are in a position of need, it is God. And yet that is the word, the first word that's used to describe how the woman is called to function. Amy Bird in her book, uh, No Little Women, which commended to you, Amy Bird, No Little Women. I went back and read portions of that this week. Uh, she takes this word, Azar, and says a way that we can consider that is necessary ally. Necessary ally. God, Israel's necessary ally in all the things that they faced. Woman, man's necessary ally in all the things that he faces. Just as Israel was doomed to failure apart from God's help, so too man, doomed to fail failure apart from woman's help. And so you get this picture in Genesis 1 and 2 of, of man and woman shoulder to shoulder on mission for God in the world within their distinctive roles. So that's man and woman before God. What about man and woman together in marriage? Well, you see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's man and woman, equal in dignity and worth, together imaging God and subduing the earth. Now in this one flesh union, which is talking about this whole-souled, nothing-held-back union of a man and a woman in marriage. So now you have this shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder reality, but also this face-to-face -face blessing in marriage. Marriage created by God to be a beautiful thing. Now, you, if you're single, if you're not married, it might be tempting here to tune out, and I hope you won't for a number of reasons. Many of you who are single are hoping to be married one day. And so as you hear this passage, I hope that you'll think about not only envisioning the kind of marriage that you want to have, but especially envisioning the kind of spouse that you want to have, what his or her character ought to be like as they seek to image Christ in the world. 
But also, I think you will find, whether married or not, that there are principles here that apply in all of our relationships. We are all called to serve one another, to consider the other as more important than ourselves. And so this applies in all of our relationships. It applies uniquely so in a marriage relationship. But there are principles that you're going to hear from this passage that I'll unpack that apply in all of our relationships. So this is for all of us, although it is particularly for those of us who are married. And within that particular particularity, for those who are married to a non-Christian spouse. All right, so marriage created by God to be beautiful. Since the fall, marriage is marred by sin. None of us wants to submit to God or anyone else for that matter. To be human is to be in rebellion. It is to resist God's rule in our lives. To be a Christian human is to still struggle with that inclination to be in rebellion before God. It's just, it's our sin nature. To be a Christian does not mean that you no longer struggle with that desire to be Lord of your life. And you know that. And so we don't naturally want to submit to God or to anyone else. And so here's marriage, which is the closest of all human relationships. And so therefore, nowhere do you see the effects of sin more starkly. The Bible tells us why in Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16, in the context of uh, God pronouncing the, um, the, uh, the, the, the punishment on the woman, he writes this, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. And then we read this, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now those two verbs, desire and rule, are found together in only one other place in the first five books of the Bible. And that's in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, where God is talking to Cain after Cain killed Abel and, write, and says this, Sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. And so the picture there in Genesis 4 of this kind of spiritual warfare in which there is either total domination from the one side or the other is what's seen in the breakdown of the marriage relationship in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. The picture there is not one of a woman, you know, just kind of desiring her husband because he's just an amazing guy. It's the same picture of total warfare between husband and wife where one seeks to rule over the other. So husbands, God created us to lovingly lead our wives, to give ourselves up for her gain. And in our sin, we seek to control them. And wives, God created you to willingly submit to your husband as a co-equal, as a necessary ally without which he fails, but in your sin, you seek to control him. And as a result, the human relationship where grace could be most beautifully on display is in fact marred by sin. And so third, in Christ, the beauty of marriage is restored. In Christ, the beauty of marriage is restored. Now, Ephesians 5 is a key passage for this. I am going to touch on that quickly. So if you'd like to either rewind from 1 Peter 3 or fast forward from Genesis uh, to get to Ephesians 5, I'm not going to go through the whole text, but just a couple things to point out. What we get here in Ephesians 5 is this. That within marriage, 
a husband who is living in submission to God and therefore is not living to serve himself, but is living to glorify God and serve his wife, and a wife who is living in submission to God and therefore not living to serve herself, but to glorify God and serve her husband, are both called to fulfill certain roles in the marriage. And here's the thing that we need to see. Both of those roles are based on the example of Jesus Christ. So back in 1 Peter 3.1 and 1 Peter 3.7, in the same way, wives, Peter says, in the same way, husbands, Peter says in 3.7, following the example of Christ, we see that same idea here in Ephesians chapter 5. Both the husband and the wife are called to play what Kathy Keller calls the Jesus role in the marriage. A wife plays the Jesus role through her willing submission to her husband as a co-equal. And the picture that you get there is Jesus doing the same thing. So what's the Jesus role look like there? Jesus is fully God. And yet Jesus submits to the will of the Father as a co-equal. Ephesians 5.22, you see the same principle. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband plays the Jesus role through his sacrificial love for his wife. Jesus in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And you see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then what Paul does in Ephesians 5 is, is beautiful because he takes Genesis 2.24 and he shows the, the fulfillment, the redemption, the, the, the renewal of the beauty of Genesis 2.24 right here in Ephesians chapter 5. When he says in chapter 5, verse, uh, let me find it, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So again, this beautiful picture of husband and wife Fulfilling the Jesus role in their marriage for one another, to one another, for the glory of God. I want to quote another uh, reference here from Amy Bird's book, No Little Women, where she, quoting uh, G.K. Beale, writes this. Beale points out that every time a man leaves his father's household to cling to his wife, we have, quote, a parable a repeated parable of what Christ would do as the husband of the church. Leave his father, cleave to the church. Bird writes, when a husband lavishly and sacrificially gives to his wife, providing her with what she desires as long as it is not sinful, he is showing the fallen world something about what Christ has come to do. And when a wife is able to offer and does offer trust to her husband, the watching world is shocked by our walking lifestyle of the gospel. In other words, a marriage that is seeking to follow the example of Christ, where both husband and wife are seeking to play the Jesus role, is a living, breathing picture of the gospel, of how Jesus Christ relates to his church. Now, we are sinful, we are imperfect. But when that is on display between two Christians, it is a beautiful thing. 
And I think one might argue that when that is on display, when only one spouse is a Christian, within the conduct and the character of that one spouse, it can be an even more beautiful thing. So let's turn second to a missional marriage. Because Peter, in this passage, takes this glorious truth of Ephesians 5, going back to Genesis 2.24 and the like, and says, this is how we apply this when one of the spouses is not a Christian. And so he speaks first to the wife. And he asks the question, how is a wife to live beautifully in a marriage to a non-Christian? Now again, what he's doing is taking truths about how the wife is to relate to her husband when they're both Christians, And so this applies to all wives in the same way that what I'm going to say in verse 7 applies to all Christian husbands, whether their spouse is a Christian or not. But Peter does have in view, especially, a non-Christian, in this case, a non-Christian husband. So just a little bit about the context. Remember, um, Greco-Roman society had a particular view of how marriage relationship was to look. One thing that characterized Greco-Roman society, a wife, her gods, were to be her husband's gods. And her friends were to be her husband's friends. And so for a wife to say, you know what, I have this God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. I look to Jesus as my Savior. And I reject the entire pantheon of gods. If her husband doesn't do the same, now you have a situation where this this fundamental aspect of what's considered the backbone of Greco-Roman society, the way a husband relates to a, a wife relates to her husband by not having any other God and not having any, any other friends, now you have a wife who rejects her husband's gods and worship a God that is not her husband's and worships with these other people who think the same and therefore doesn't have her husband's friends. And so Peter's very concerned about how she lived within that kind of a context. She risked being seen as subversive, as undermining Greco-Roman society, not just the marriage. Likely, therefore, to bring scorn on herself from her husband and, and from the broader culture. So how should she then live? Peter gives a number of commands. First, in verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So again, this isn't women to every man. It's within the context of marriage. Wives to your own husband. That word, be subject, it's a word that we've talked about this before. It's, it's a reflexive action. Submit yourself to. Willingly arrange your life under the authority of another. It is your decision. It's something that you choose to do. Be subject to your own husband. You get the same kind of idea in, a, in a verses 5 and 6 through the example of Sarah. <clears throat> and so Peter writes there uh, in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And that idea of obey there is just another way to describe the submission that uh, he talked about in verse 1 and and verse 5. So what does that look like? How does that apply in our lives today? And one of the ways in which uh, Tim and Kathy Keller in their book on uh, marriage describe it is um, acknowledging that God has given the husband tie-breaking authority. 
when it comes to major decisions in their life together. Um, a wise husband listens to his wife. A wise husband recognizes that she brings gifts and abilities and perspectives that he lacks. He recognizes that as his necessary ally, he would be a fool to move forward without her. But at the end of the day, God calls the husband to make the final decision and be held accountable for it, even where there is disagreement. Now, I can tell you firsthand what it's like to fail in that. Before we moved here uh, to Rochester, we were in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I was, we were church planting, and we were renting a house, and um, there was this new thing that happened in Kalamazoo called the Kalamazoo Promise. So these, um, these wealthy donors who wish to remain anonymous said anyone who attends Kalamazoo Public Schools will be given a free college education within the state of Michigan, state college, entirely paid for. And if they stay in Kalamazoo and go to Western Michigan University, they'll not only have free college, they'll also have free room and board. And so what was beginning to happen was people who were able to work from home we're moving to Kalamazoo. We had a guy down our street, a couple that moved from Oregon. We we're like, why are you here? And they're like, hey, I can work from home and my kids can get free college, so here we are. And so I thought it would be a really good idea to buy the house that we were renting. It was in the Kalamazoo Public School District. And my wife said, bad idea. Now she did not need to pull out spreadsheets she did not need to draw on her banking history, which she had. She did not need to do anything other than say, Mark, I have a bad feeling about this and we shouldn't do it. And I decided we should do it anyway. And that house didn't sell. We bought it. It didn't sell. We moved here. We paid two mortgages for 17 months. It destroyed us financially before the house finally went into um, foreclosure. I didn't listen to my wife. I failed to wisely move forward, recognizing that her counsel was good. And I paid for it. Now she, discerning rightly that this should not have been done, she obeyed in the sense that she said, okay, you're going to be responsible for this decision before God. I've done everything I can. <laughs> and so I'm going to trust the Lord even though right now it's hard for me to trust you. And so what does it look like to apply this? It, it looks like that. A wise husband listens to his wife and the perspectives that she brings, recognizing he doesn't see the whole picture. And he's willing to really pause before moving forward without her. So Paul says that, or Peter says that here in this passage. Verse 6, Peter says, do not fear anything that is frightening. It's the end of verse 6. What does that mean? Peter is not saying, if your husband is abusing you, you should stay in that relationship. We know that in part because even in Greco-Roman context, it was considered vile and wrong for a husband to abuse his wife. In the same way, the Bible nowhere, and certainly not Peter, condones the idea of spousal abuse. And so if you are in an abusive relationship, get out, get help 
find shelter, call the police. Do not think that the godly and God-honoring thing to do is to stay in a relationship where you are being abused. So what does it mean then to not fear that which was frightening? Well, I think it goes back in large part to what was going to be happening to these women. They were going to be maligned and scorned because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That was the picture that all of 1 Peter paints of Christians who are being mocked for their faith and are being marginalized because of their faith. And a woman in Greco-Roman culture was already at a societal disadvantage. And so Peter says, should you be mocked, should you be maligned for your faith, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Instead, verses 3 and 4, he says, pursue inner beauty. So let's take a look there. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then back in verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. I've, I've heard this verse used to try to say that no woman and no child should be wearing makeup or should be wearing fine jewelry. And that's not what Paul is saying, or Peter's saying here. If Peter were saying that here, then by the time you get to the third thing that he forbids, the wearing of clothing, your hunch would probably be, okay, he's not talking about literally not wearing these things. He's not prohibiting jewelry or fine clothing. What he is saying is, let your inner beauty be that upon which you focus. Now, that made sense culturally. In Greco-Roman culture, a, a woman who would adorn herself in that way was already being viewed in the culture as somewhat subversive, trying to kind of stand out apart from her husband, maybe be appealing in the eyes of other men. And so what Peter is saying is, listen, you're already under the microscope. Because you have a God that's not your husband's God. You have friends that are not your husband's friends. Do not draw undue attention to yourself by also exercising this right. It's not like it's wrong to wear makeup or to wear jewelry or to wear nice clothes, but don't draw undue attention to yourself. We're already under the microscope. Rather, he says, do something that we all ought to be doing, which is pursuing inner transformation, not outer presentation. Every one of us wrestles with that. It it struck me as I was thinking about this week. You know what? There is little difference between an 85-year-old person who was a fitness junkie when they were in their 20s and an 85-year-old person who was a couch potato in their 20s. Now, if you're in your 20s, don't let that be a reason to not get up and exercise. But just don't put your hope in that. Because the the, the outward stuff fades and eventually perishes. Now, God is so good, he's going to resurrect our bodies. So the best body you've ever had is in front of you, not behind you. But what our focus is now, not just wives, but all of us, is that inner transformation, that inner beauty that is precious in the sight of God. And so, Summarizing 3, 1 through 6, Peter is saying, wives, live the Jesus role in your marriage, even if your husband hates Jesus. Even if he rejects, even though he rejects and perhaps mocks your belief, even if he takes no interest in the spiritual development of your children, even if he lives or even though he lives for things of fleeting value, pray for him. Look for opportunities to show him honor. 
and show him by your life what grace can do in a person. So if that's how wives are to live beautifully in a marriage, especially to a non-Christian, how are husbands to do the same? And we get that in verse 7. There's absolutely no reason to reject the idea that, that Peter's not talking about husbands married to a non-Christian wife. That's the context. And so what Peter is saying here is certainly true for husbands when married to a Christian wife, but also true, and maybe especially all the more so in context, when married to a non-Christian wife. So what does he say? He says, first, live with her in an understanding way in verse 7, which means in part know what you're called to be as husband in the marriage. It means know your wife in particular, know her preferences, know her desires, know her hopes, know her fears, know her needs. Dan Doriani puts it this way, husbands are scientists with a narrow field of inquiry. Pursue what makes for the flourishing of your wife. Showing honor to the woman, he says in verse 7. Showing honor to your wife. The word for honor there comes from the same root as the word used when it comes in chapter 2, verse 17, to honoring the emperor. So husbands, are you honoring your wives? Can she say to you, I know that only Jesus is more esteemed in your eyes than me? If on this next Mother's Day or, or if you were to buy her a card or if you were to quote Proverbs thirty-one twenty-nine to her and say, many women do noble things, but you surpass them all, would she really believe that you mean it? Like those aren't just words coming from you. That's the way you've treated her with that kind of honor, that kind of dignity, and that kind of respect. Showing honor to the woman, he writes, as the weaker vessel, which simply most likely prefer, refers to her physical strength. Men, generally speaking, are stronger than women. That's a general statement. It also may point to the fact that within that society, women were less empowered and so more at risk socially. Showing honor as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered, Peter writes at the end of verse 7. More accurately, you could translate that so that God will hear your prayers. In other words, God may turn a deaf ear to you if you're not honoring the, your wife the way he calls you to honor your wife. That assumes a couple things. First of all, it assumes that you're praying. Assumes that you're praying. You're praying for your wife. You're praying for your kids. You're praying for yourself. You're praying for your church. You're praying for all manner of things. And then, secondly, do you pause and ask the question when your prayers aren't being answered if you're married Am I honoring my wife as I should? Maybe that's why my prayers aren't being answered. All right, so there's. Peter applying biblical principles of marriage, this beautiful marriage in the context of a marriage in which one of the spouse is a believer and the other is not, what would that have looked like in Peter's day? It would have looked beautiful and it would have looked countercultural. It would have looked beautiful because for a woman to demonstrate that kind of submissive behavior to her husband is not only something the Bible holds forth as in line with God's will, but it's also something that was culturally commendable. It was seen as good 
for a woman to live that way in relationship to her husband in that culture. So it was seen as beautiful to demonstrate biblical principles in marriage. Now the motive for the wife in that scenario was completely different. It was out of love for Christ and her first commitment to him, but it was beautiful, even in the eyes of non-Christians and perhaps especially in the eyes of the husband who's not a believer. So seen as beautiful, but also seen as countercultural, because the way in which Peter addresses the husbands in this passage was completely unlike anything that existed in Greco-Roman culture. Women were not to be abused, but they were very much seen as inferior in that context. A letter that was written to a, a, a household was only addressed to the man. A woman wasn't even referenced. She certainly wasn't written to or addressed directly. And yet Peter says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That was a radical statement in that day and age. Peter is not only addressing them as co-heirs, saying your wife is a co-heir with you, which was true, obviously, if she was a Christian. But he's actually saying, even if she's not a Christian, treat her as if she were. A co-heir with you of the grace of life. Go back and read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 to see what I'm talking about. Treat her as if she were a co-heir with you of the grace of life, even if she's not. That's countercultural in that day and age. What does that look like now? Beautiful and countercultural, but for exactly the opposite reasons. Okay? In that day and age, it was a beautiful thing for a wife to submit to her husband. It was a countercultural thing for a husband to, to pursue that which made for flourishing out of love and honor for his wife. That was countercultural. Now that is seen as beautiful. And it ought to be seen as beautiful. It's absolutely in line with what Scripture teaches concerning how a man is to treat, a husband is to treat his wife with honor, with dignity, with respect. That is rightly seen as a positive thing in our culture when the flourishing of a woman is pursued, especially by her husband. So there is real opportunity here for us men, whether you're married or not, to honor the women in your life or the women in your church or the women with whom you work, whether they are believers or not. Now, some of you men struggle mightily with the objectification of women. And what Scripture calls us to is to see women as persons, co-equals, co-rulers, over all creation, co-image bearers, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect, and not to be treated as items to be consumed. That way of living, showing that kind of honor and dignity and respect is seen as beautiful. It's called by God to be beautiful as well. And so therefore, we ought to be living that way, men, and husbands. What is seen as countercultural now is that which was seen as beautiful then. This idea of a wife gladly putting herself under the oversight, under the authority, submitting to her own husband. That now is seen as 
not just counter-cultural, but in our culture, repulsive and regressive and demeaning. And in many reasons, rightly so. Because as Christian husbands and as Christian wives, we have fallen so far short of portraying a beautiful marriage to the surrounding culture. But when there is a husband who loves his wife like Christ loves the church, and when there is a wife who seeks to submit as a co-equal in the same way that Jesus submitted to the Father in order to carry out his will, there is the opportunity for something in this culture which so desperately needs to see a beautiful marriage to actually portray a beautiful marriage. And so my deep desire is that as husbands and wives who are Christians married to one another, we will see that our marriage is not something just to be enjoyed for ourselves. It's to be on display before a watching world, which means we're bringing people into our lives. It means we're taking seriously about what our relationship looks like with our children. What do they see in us? But keeping in mind Peter's primary context of a Christian spouse married to a non-Christian, there is a possibility, a real possibility to display the grace and the glory of God as you fulfill the Jesus role that you're called to even within that marriage. To the end that your spouse may be one, even without words. We look third and finally and briefly to the ideal spouse, Jesus. And here's my contention here in this last point. Seeing Jesus as the ideal spouse will help you love your actual spouse. Seeing Jesus as the ideal spouse will help you. It is the only thing that will help you to love your actual spouse, be your spouse a Christian or not. Seeing the way Jesus submits to the will of the Father, even though equal with the Father, provides an example to the wife. But for all of us, husband, wife, man, woman, child, recognizing that Jesus did that for you, though equal with God, submitted to the will of the Father, even to the point of death on the cross, that changes the way in which you live and love other people. And within the context of marriage, seeing the fact that Jesus did that just for you enables you, compels you to love your actual spouse. Seeing the way Jesus laid down his life for the church, that provides an example to us husbands. But recognizing that he did that just for you, that he did that just for me, is precisely the thing that I need to remember and you need to remember as you seek to love your actual spouse. Seeing Jesus as the ideal spouse is the only thing that will enable you to love your actual spouse. And that gets back again to what Peter said back in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 now. This is the work of the ideal spouse. This is the life this is his love, verse 24, chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Parenthetically, in marriage. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd 
and overseer of your souls. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. By his sacrificial life and death, he won people to himself. Having been won by his grace, we now follow his example by imitating him in our marriage. There was a little hint of what that involves within this passage. It was the same thing I saw in my aunt. It was the same thing I saw in my friend Mike. It's the same thing that if you are living in a marriage where the spouse is not a Christian, you know that this needs to characterize you. And it was the same thing that characterized Sarah and the godly women of old. Hope in God. Hope in God. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Hope in God. Christian husband married to a non-Christian wife, put your hope in God, not in your marriage. Not even in the potential conversion of your wife. Let your hope be in God and God alone. Christian wife married to a non-Christian husband, don't put your hope in your marriage. You experience profound sadness because you are not experiencing marriage as God intended it to be. Put your hope in God. Look to the ideal spouse. In him, our joy will be complete. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being for us what no other human being could ever be. The one who completes us, the one who fulfills us, the one who empowers and enables us to live and flourish in our time of sojourning here on earth in a way that no human being ever could. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that whether be, we be Christian husbands or Christian wives or, or Christian men or Christian women or Christian children, that, Lord, this would be what characterizes us. We look to you, to your example. We look to you and your work. We look to you and your sacrifice that we might know life. And, Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen.